Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another live episode of The Yield. Be sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you enjoy the content. In case we haven't met before, I'm Peter Kerr and the Director of Product Marketing here at Yield Street. Today, I'm joined by Richard Turin. Rich is the author of International Bestsellers, Cashless, China's Digital Currency Revolution, and Innovation Lab Excellence. He was formerly head of fintech for IBM Cognitive Studios Singapore, IBM's Innovation Lab, where he led a team that built innovative AI and analytical solutions. Prior to his time at IBM, Rich was a banker for almost 20 years. Throughout his career, Richard has been a serial innovator, and his success he attributes to thinking outside the box. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. I'm delighted to be here, and it's great to meet all of those folks out there watching Yield Street. Hi. Hi, everybody. We're excited to have you. So why don't we start off, uh, for those who are less familiar uh, with you, maybe telling us a little bit more about your background. Sure. Uh, Happy to do it. Hi, everybody. Look. It's really simple. The financial crisis came in 2008, and I picked up two duffel bags. And in 2010, after a couple of years watching what had happened to my former world as a structured products guy, I picked up the duffel bags and I went to China and I started a new career here. So basically what's relevant for everybody out there to know is that I was an innovator in banking for the entirety of my time on a trading floor. And what I did is I worked as a mathematician and I worked with a team of coders, legal people, and we structured stuff. So what we did is we worked on that intersection of computers, mathematics, and finance. So what I eventually found myself doing here in China, other than being an MBA school professor, we'll talk about that another time, is I eventually got picked up by IBM. And what did I do? I took computers and I took math and quantitative skills and we put them together. But instead of using all that stuff on the um, all these skills for the trading floor, we started to go out further and do what is now commonly called financial technology or fintech for short. So um, good fun. And I've been at the intersection of machines and money um, since 1990. And it's just remarkable what we can do now. So it's it's a lot of fun. And I saw a lot of changes here in China, too. So that's 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 where I come from and how I got here. It's almost as if when you packed your bags, you made a decision on where you think uh, your growth and probably the tailwinds um, that would support it were going to be better in China than they were in the U.S. Would you agree? 
Oh, absolutely. Although but, but there's, so there's that, that that thinking. Yeah, there's sort of so there's sort of two things that happen. One one is relevant but not career related, which was I came to Shanghai for the first time in 2003, and I had some friends living here, and I spent about three weeks, and my mind was blown. I loved it. I just thought that I had gone to heaven. It was really just so dynamic, so different, and so vibrant. At between 2003 and 2010, you know, I started taking Mandarin lessons and I just said, look, I got to go back. But I was working and I was having a normal life. So you can't exactly get pick up your bags and go. You know, I had good jobs and, you know, responsible for teams uh, trading uh, on a trading floor. You know, you're not just going to leave. So but when time came and I said, look, I can leave now. I have no ties. I have no I had no job. I took off. So, yeah, it was this weird fate back in 2003 that I loved the place. And then it was 2008 and 9, the Olympics in China. And basically, China was truly the last economy standing. Global financial crisis. There was one engine pushing the globe around. And to be honest, China doesn't get enough credit for it. But during the global financial crisis, China pushed a lot of money into the into their economy to help stuff go. Um, so their economy was doing very well when, you know, the market for finance guys back in Europe and the U.S. was slim to slim to zero. But uh, so that's that's what drove me to come here. So it's interesting. I mean, you know, there have also, you know, it's very early stages, but there are a lot of frontier market and kind of the next wave of EM companies that, you know, if we go back, we remember the brick countries were, that were always going to be the next frontier. And really it was China that stood above the rest. Just kind of taking a look at the current landscape and, and what you kind of predict going forward. Do you see any other countries, you know, on the EM or frontier side that maybe you think are, are prime for that next catapult of growth like China was in, in you know, coming out of the global financial crisis? Absolutely. And, you know, it's a really funny question because I'm talking to a gentleman that I knew in Shanghai a couple of years back, and he'd been in Shanghai for 20 years plus, you know, he was a lifer. And he said, you know, I'm giving up the business. The guy is really interesting. He had a Southern bar and restaurant, and he was a full CFA, sat on a lot of company boards. He was a really sort of peripatetic guy, did a lot of stuff. He's a real sharp guy, too. But he looked at me at one point, he said, I'm leaving. I said, you know, I, I can't believe it. You're leaving. You've been here for 20 years. He said, I'm going to Vietnam because Vietnam is what China was like 20 years ago. And I want that kind of growth. So there you go. There's one real expat story of a guy going to Vietnam, seeking his, his future there. And um, other guys, I've known one in particular who was going to Cambodia, doing a lot of work in Cambodia. So, you know, a lot of the smaller Southeast Asian countries are up and coming and they call them the smaller tigers, I think. And, you know, they're they're doing OK now with COVID. It's, it's a, you know, it's a very different world. I get that. But COVID will end someday. And when COVID ends, um, people will be going to Vietnam, potentially Cambodia. There's other places to go um, that are the new Shanghai or the new growth places. What, what do you think the key criteria are, though, that kind of set these these smaller uh, tigers up for success that maybe are parallel to, to what China had going for back in you know the, the post-financial crisis era? I think the big thing is dynamic growth because of chaos. <laughs> and I know that's perhaps not the most technically sophisticated answer. 
for a guy who spent most of his time working with complex derivatives and structured products. But the reality is the absolute chaos in some of these developing economies makes for tremendous opportunities. You can open a bar, you can license it, you can do stuff, you know? I mean, there's the sense that with a small amount of money, a good idea, a, lo a lot of hard work, you can have an opportunity. And that's what many of the adventurous people, many of the adventurous expats who came to China in 2003, 2004, you know, all the way up till I got here. And, you know, really when I got here in 2010, it was already very well developed already. You know, I didn't have a lot of quote hardship where you can't get stuff in the store or, you know, you know, you you have to make do with, you know, what's on the economy. You can't get your favorite, whatever. Now, when I go to the store in China, you know, it's like going to a store in the U S there's just nothing you don't have in the big city centers, but, you know, so I think what makes it for these other economies is the chaos and the sense that you can do many things without, um, without uh, a lot of regulation and a lot of control. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, you know, I'm curious, there's, there's obviously been a lot of headlines recently about what, you know, um, especially in the fintech space and some of the large technology companies, especially those, you know, with, with listings in, in sure. the U.S., and a little bit more of some increased uh, oversight for, for lack of a better term. Can you maybe walk us through kind of what's going on there? I think people are seeing the headlines, but maybe not sure, um, you know, what's really going on under the, under the current. Sure. My, the last ending words of, of answering the last question were regulation and control. And you can't get a better segue than that to talking about regulation and control of the China's tech sector right now. So look, I get it. It is for most people watching from the West, it's nuts. They're watching what China is doing with the tech sector. And oftentimes you'll read articles about China is ruining it. China is doing very bad things. China is certainly costing investors a lot of money. I get that. And I am sympathetic to investors who have lost. I, I, I understand that. But in a big picture, China is rearranging and working with big tech to make it compatible with a digital future here in China. Now, let me explain. China is a highly digitized society, and its goal is to become di more digitized. And just so that you put this in perspective, Chinese people, for example, have the world's largest numbers of apps on their cell phone. They love digital. So when you tell Chinese people that native Chinese people that things are going to get more digital, they're genuinely excited for it because to them that means advancement and things are going to get better. So I say that because I understand that a lot of Western view listeners or viewers are saying, well, increased digitization is a bad thing. We're scared of that. Well, China is not. And it's not just because the government pushes it. It's because people really love it. They, they love the new digital services. And generally, they're very well received. So what you see China doing with these changes in regulation are setting up big tech to be aligned with the goals of Chinese society going forward. So what do you see? You see 
the delivery guys for Meituan, the food delivery service, you see the government cracking down and saying, look, these are gig workers. They only work you know, when they drive scooters to deliver stuff. So you see the government saying, look, you have to guarantee them minimum wage. You saw a crackdown on the education sector, which really did hit a lot of the, a lot of the recent IPO uh, education stocks in, in the U.S. markets. And you say, well, what, what the heck are they doing there? Well, you have to understand the after-school programs for kid, be, kids became socially divisive. Rich people could afford them. Poor people couldn't. It gave rich people, their kids, an edge in getting into schools that the poorer people couldn't. So it became a social class divisive thing. It also started, here's the ironic thing, because the, the after-school programs had so much money, they were actually buying teachers out of the public schools, the best ones to come teach in the after-school programs. So it was starting to cause imbalances, not just in the social fabric between rich and poor, it was causing instability within the school systems because the best teachers were being hired away for after-school programs. So you say, well, that hurt stocks. Here, ready? This is the takeaway. The Chinese government does not care if foreign investors lose money, the way they look at it is this is a necessary societal reorganization. It is critical for long-term growth. And if you have a short-term loss, as far as the Chinese government goes, yeah, they, they, they don't like it. They understand, they, the, you know, the Securities Regulatory Commission gets it's bad, but they look at this well, as short-term and that, yes, long term, it will get better. So look at the words of guys like Ray Dalio who say, look, don't look at the wiggles. His exact words, don't look at the wiggles up and down. Look long term where China is going so, and China's growing still. To, to that point, I mean, obviously, you know, um, I think there's been concerns just about the growing credit growth within China, particularly in, on the private side. And obviously it's grown to be, you know, multiples of GDP. And so the question then becomes, how does China, China transition to their next phase of growth? when it's, let's say, less subsidized by, by government, how do you kind of see you know, China's dependence on, on credit growth kind of weaning while they also kind of foster some of their, their government target growth numbers? Okay, so when we talk about credit growth, um, let's talk about SME and personal credit growth rather than state enterprise or large corporate. So um, look, SME and private credit, that's been the um, domain of... Ant Group and WeChat Pay, or Alipay and WeChat Pay. It's been their domain in that they are the ones that have fundamentally disrupted and changed the entire model that we use for lending by using digital lending, which is based on big data and the data stream that SMEs or individuals leave on the either WeChat platform or the Alipay platform, the two big platforms. So first thing, let's acknowledge is that Ant Group in particular cracked the code. They cracked the concept of digital lending before anybody else in the planet. And it's profitable, no question about it. Now the question comes in is just because you can lend, should you? And how much credit creation is too much or too little? And that invariably brings me to talk about Ant Group IPO because people are wondering. And so, the real big tech crackdown in China really started with Ant Group. And many well, say, where, well, where is Jack Ma? 
where is Jack Ma? Jack Ma is playing. You know, the Financial Times did a great article on Jack Ma. They actually traced his airplane. I saw that. Yeah. Did you see that? The transponder. I, 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 I was mind blowing. Yeah. yeah. They tracked his transponder, and he was going to Beijing a lot, and then he was down in Hainan a lot playing golf. So yes, um, Jack Ma faces something that you see. Look, people in the West don't get it. Let me give you an example. There was a star here called Fan Bing Bing, and she misappropriated funds for a, um, she was a bad person. She misappropriated, I don't think she really stole, but stuff went missing from a relief fund, all right? So her penance, to use a religious word, was to basically be blocked out of movies and other stuff for a year or so. And she's still around. Now she's being rehabilitated, and you can see her in more stuff. But Jack Ma is undergoing that same process, which is very foreign to Westerners, but to people in China, it's like, okay, it's like putting a kid in timeout. You go in timeout for about a year, and then after a year, you're going to see Jack Ma come out. He'll be rehabilitated. Look, everybody in China loves Jack Ma. Not everybody. Oh, there, there are people who really don't. Okay, let me make that clear. But generally, he is a respected person for what he did, and he will be rehabilitated. But he's going in this timeout box, which is a uniquely Chinese thing. We don't have it in the West. and But that's what's going on. So let's go back to um, yeah, the yeah, IPO yeah. real quickly. So look, many in the West look at the IPO. They follow this following very simplistic narrative. Jack Ma went to what was called the Shanghai meeting and shot his mouth off. Regulators were very, very upset, and then they canned the IPO. That's simplistic. If you want to believe that, fine. I have no problem with it. Or you can believe this one. Jack Ma, the most connected guy in China, knew what was happening. <laughs> and when he made pleas to the regulators, it was because he knew what was going on in the background and it was his last ditch effort. But as far as the regulators are concerned, the regulators probably were okay when, when Ant was coming in at a $200 billion valuation, probably okay at 220, 240, yeah. Suddenly, the valuations for Ant Group were going up to 318. That was the peak. 318, 320 was about the peak. Now, hold on a second. If you look at Ant Group, there's only one real way for them to satisfy the investors, and that's to issue credit. Well, how much credit can you issue in China before you have, you're basically creating debt slaves? So, what, you, what, the, what, the, what the regulators were, the regulators were genuinely slow, no argument about that, but they were spooked. Regulators in China had just come off what's called the P2P crisis, which is $120 billion lost. That was not 50 years ago, that was 2016, 17, and they're still sorting it out to this day. So regulators are looking at what could be a potential credit explosion in China due to the IPO and high valuations forcing Ant to issue more. And frankly, that's one of the primary reasons why the Ant IPO was, was called off. And I, I, I agree that the timing was, was terrible, no argument there, but that's what was behind the decision. So credit in China is a big deal. The good news is that we have 
new ways of getting credit, which are big data based and are convenient and easy and are still around. You know, they, they didn't go away. And people and small businesses are making use of them and they're helping a lot of people. That's the good news. So, you know, one of the things that underpins a lot of that conversation was was kind of fintech. And it was one of the themes of, of today's uh, conversation. So I'm curious, you know, just, just generally speaking, you know, how, how do you think fintech will continue, has and will continue to change, you know, um, how we manage our finances, including how we invest? Absolutely. And look, and that's, you know, that's sort of why I wrote my book, Cashless, because what I saw happening in China on the two major platforms, Alipay and WeChat Pay, are a model. They're a blueprint for where we're going in the future in the United States. And you say, well, how could that be? First of all, disclaimer, I get it. The companies aren't the same and not all the technology is going to be the same between the US and China. I understand there's regulatory differences, but here's what will happen. In China, through Alipay and WeChat Pay and the ability to send your money freely and immediately all across China, you have the ability to pick where you want to put your money. And it changes your fundamental relationship with cash, money. Cash, we don't use. I have I, book is called cash. My book is called Cashless because I haven't touched cash in years. Yet. So what we have to look forward to is a fintech future, which is beautiful and good. And it's a future where your money can go where you want it to go free for free and immediately. And that's coming. And whether it happens through a central bank digital currency, a stable coin, or another system like what's, what's called FedNow, which is going to come on in the, in the U.S. next year. How we get it doesn't matter. But in the very near future, your relationship to money is going to change because you can put your money wherever you want. It's what I call hypermobility. I just want to pause you there. Before yeah. you get too far, I think one question that we get asked a lot because you know we, we primarily work in alternatives and obviously Bitcoin um, is one of the most prominent and most talked about uh, currencies now. One thing that a lot of people have, you know, discussed with us is just the fact that, you know, they have things like Chase Pay, like Venmo, PayPal, whatever it might be, which gives the impression that, you know, the U.S. dollar right now currently is digital. But maybe you can kind of just quickly um, elaborate on on the nuances there, especially with the Fed now coming. Absolutely. Oh, look, absolutely. That's a that's a wonderful question. And let's and look, if most of your audience is Bitcoin guys, they'll get this immediately. All right, this is really simple. When I use, and you know, I'm holding up my phone for those who are on a podcast and, and listening, I'm holding up my phone and I'm opening up the WeChat account, all right? And I'm going to my WeChat wallet and you can actually see it. You can see a couple of lines. They're gonna just come up as, as gray lines. You, you Don't worry, you can't scan my QR code. I'm sure the fidelity isn't good enough. But the point is this, when you use WeChat, when you use Venmo, when you use Chase Banking, Yes, you are right. You are making a digital transfer. What you are doing is you are taking money out of one account, and that account is essentially a database, and you're taking minus $10 from one database, and you're pushing it into another account, and that database for that account gets plus 10. That's it. It's low-tech. It's great. It works. No problem. So that's traditional when we talk about money is digital and i have a lot of old school folks who argue this well my money's already digital why do i need more ready the next iteration which is central bank digital currency which is 
to a degree, and I don't want to fight people on this, is Bitcoin. They came up with this, and it's the tokenization of money, where instead of being money, your money being in an account and being a ledger entry or a database entry in that account, your money, your hundred, in my case, my hundred RMB, here's my great visual, I have a paper hundred RMB note, is transferred into a series of zeros and ones. It is actually digitized. So that note is turned digital. So when I you when I pay somebody with my phone, and this is what's going to happen in China very soon, central bank digital currency in China is already in trial. And we have a feature where we can take one phone and we can put it next to another phone. And the two phones don't need to have signal. They can just be in the middle of nowhere with no signal and you can transfer money from one to the other. Now you say, well, how does this work? So here's the, here's the visualization. Ready? The money is on the phone. That's the simplest way to put it. Now, what does that mean? It means that the digital representation of that paper bill in zeros and ones is held on a digital wallet and it is actually on your phone. So when you transfer money from one phone to the other, you're actually sending that those zeros and ones from one phone to the other. There's no account, there's a wallet, there's this digital wallet, but it's not really an account like a bank account and there's no database. It's like having a hundred RMB note on your phone. And when you transfer that, it goes to the other phone. The digital zeros and ones are transferred over electronic digitally, you're done. So that's the tokenization. When money is not an account, money is not a entry in a database, it is a long string of zeros and ones. And it is actually a thing that gets transferred from one place to another. Very interesting. So right now, I think, generally speaking, the U.S. dollar is sort of the reserve currency uh, of the world. You know, we've talked about the Fed moving towards this more uh, digital currency. What do you think the implications are of the Fed moving to, you know, a digital currency or at least providing, um, you know, again, this this more modern approach to to money? And then what do you think that does to other competitive decentralized uh, digital currencies? Sure. Look, so the first thing to know is that the Fed is really on the fence with this. The Fed has a board of governors and the board of governors, you know, their comments are just mind blowing to me. We got one Fed governor saying that, quote, uh, you can't make this up. He said, central bank digital currencies are a fad like parachute pants in the 90s. Uh, I'm not sure that's the best analogy. Don't blame me. That's him. So that's your Fed. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, para- I, I do. I remember parachute pants. But anyway, still, you know, the you know, so another Fed governor, and I give him credit. He said, "Look, I like stable coins. I don't see a reason for for central bank digital currencies." And the head of the Fed, Jerome Powell, has been anti central bank digital currency for quite a while, and now he's sort of on the fence. But you can't call him out one way or the other. So look, as a result of this, the United States is predictably behind at working on or designing a central bank digital currency. To their credit, I agree, the US dollar is the reserve currency. There's no rush for them. There's no need for the United States to be first. I get that. 
but it would be nice if the U.S. were further along. So here's what I think is going to happen. The good news. We are going to get a digital future. And it's coming not in five to ten years. It's coming in the next two. And that digital future will not be central bank digital currency based immediately. That will not be the first digitization because the Fed needs it took China seven years to design and roll out a digital currency. It'll take the Fed even longer because they're technically not as, I'm sorry to say this, guys, they're not as sharp as China's PBOC. PBOC runs a lot of technical computer programs. They do a lot of code and designing. The Fed doesn't, all right? Not trying to be mean to the Fed, just truthful, okay? So what you're going to see in this interim, and you see it right now, and it's playing out in the news every day. Watch this, folks. It's great. Watch the regulations for stable coins. What you see is the realization that there is no new digital payment system, and that once the regulators in the U.S. can figure out how to regulate them effectively, we're going to be using stable coins. And in the, within my prediction, within the next two years, you're going to see them launched and available for buying a cup of coffee wherever. Okay. Then after some years, you're going to see eventually a central bank digital currency. Folks, it's not just China rolling out central bank digital currencies. 86 or 87% of the central banks in the planet right now are working on them. The Euro, there will be a digital euro. They're, they started the project a month ago. They have a two-year window now to design and essentially build a digital euro. Okay, two years is plenty of time. They'll figure it out. They'll get it. But if you look at the European Central Bank and you think and you hear their welcoming comments toward a central bank digital currency, which brings things like financial inclusion. Friends, Twenty-two. the, the Fed itself says that there are 22% of Americans who are unbanked or underbanked, 63 million people. And then Fed governors say, we can't possibly think of a reason why a, a central bank digital currency would be any good. Meanwhile, you've got 63% of your 63 million in the United States who are un or underbanked. Underbanked means you got to use check cashing services and other stuff, right? So that's that's yeah. where we are. And so, um, so you, you, you actually elaborate a lot on the central bank side. I'm curious, how do you think like large financial institutions and global banks adapt in this world? And, and really, what's their what's their role to play? Great question. Look at China. First thing. So there are. So there's a couple of things we can learn from China. First thing we can learn. Ready? This is sort of an Internet meme. When. Big tech, if they became banks, they'd kill all the banks. They'd, you know, bankrupt JP Morgan because everybody would run. It happened in China. WeChat and Alipay are the equivalent of Amazon and they're the equivalent of Facebook. Banks are still here. They're doing fine. Now, if we're going to get this new payment system in the U.S. someday with stable coins and eventually with with this, eventually with the central bank digital currency. In my view, it is inevitable, even though there'll be some battles in the next couple of years over it. The bank's payment operations. Remember all the money they charge you to move money around? How about, remember, you think about all the money that you don't even think about. Ready? You're buying a coffee. There's a 4% tax built into that all across 3 to 4%, depending on what the vendor has negotiated with their credit card company. 
right? So if it's Starbucks, then maybe it's less, two, two and a half, right? But if it's a typical mom and pop coffee shop, why do you think they don't take American Express when they, you know, when American Express charges them 6% vendor fee? So that's a hidden tax on everything that we pay. So I wrote this today on LinkedIn, so it's kind of funny. So here we go. We use credit cards. We love credit cards in the States. If your local coffee shop gave you a 5% discount on coffee and you could buy it with a stable coin with a QR code, and here is a picture of a QR code, like the one we've got on, uh, on the, my WeChat account, right? Would you use it? Well, to save 5%, I think a lot of people would stop swiping and tapping and start scanning QR codes. Um, that, so that, the that banks- A lot about you know, where the credit card companies go, but I'm curious, I'm sorry, you may have just been about to go yeah. into it, but um, so where, where the banks go? The banks, I was just, I was getting there, I promise. <laughs> so I'm long-winded, but it's okay. So what happened to the banks in China? The banks in China lost a lot of money in their payment business, meaning their cards, their transfers, all that fee, all of that low level, but high frequency fee business on cash transfer gone. And that's what's going to happen in the United States. However, well, wait for it. Banks have many different profit lines. Payments and the payment revenue from cards and fees and services is just one slice. Home mortgages, car loans, all that other stuff is, is going to be virtually un, untapped. But here's one thing that will be hit. Ready? We've got banks that are charging huge amounts in uh, late, late fees and, and, and late payments. You know, and, and, you know, and that's going to go. If we can go digital and make a digital payment system, whatever technology is relevant, um, you're not going to be paying late fees. You'll know how much money you sent. You'll know how much money is in your account. You'll know when the check arrives because there's no check anymore in the mail. It's just going to pop in your wallet. So um, banking will change, and a lot of the nuisance fees are going to go away, and that's the great thing about a digital currency life. And let's leave it for a moment, whether it's going to be central bank digital currency, stable coins, Bitcoin, whatever other, forget it. We're going to go digital. How we crack that problem doesn't matter. When you go that way, your life will be made better. How do I know this? I live in China. I don't have any cash. My life is fully digital for money. And you know something? It is truly wonderful. And it's something to look forward to. Rich, we're, we're, we're getting close on time here. Um, sure. I do want to ask you about your, your real estate investments because that's something that's near and dear to the heart of many of our yeah, sure. investors. But before that, I do want to just give you an opportunity. Um, as I mentioned at the start, you've written two books, uh, Cashless, China's Digital Currency Revolution, which we've obviously spent a lot of time on. Uh, but you've also written another book, Innovation Lab Excellence. I uh, do. I just want to maybe give readers a sense of, of both those books and maybe what they cover uh, quickly, and then we can go into your uh, your real estate investment. Sure, just real real quickly. So look, folks, I have two books out, and the latest one is called Cashless, and it's all about China's digital currency revolution, and it's available on Amazon. It's a bestseller. It's got 60-something five-star reviews right now, and it is the only book about China's central bank digital currency. And if you're thinking, I don't care about central bank digital currency, I don't care about China, let me reframe this. This book will tell you what your cashless future will look like. And that's the thing. So if you want to know what 
this digital world that I live in looks like and with that you will soon have read cashless. The other book is called Innovation Lab Excellence. And I headed IBM's Innovation Lab and I headed innovation teams for 18 years when I was in banking. So it's all about how to make innovation work at your company. And that book is also on Amazon and um, it did really well. It's, you know, it's, it's, what is it? It's three and a half years old and it's still re selling regularly. And what's the most, the best thing in the world is when I get people who write to me and they say, I bought your book. I used your book to help my innovation lab to make it better. And it's better. And I really want to thank you. And that's for me, like I get up in the morning and, you know, and I, I fumble through my emails. And if I get one of those, I'm, I'm through the, I'm through them, uh, through them, going to the moon. It's great. It's what, the what, best what would way to start the morning. Just with your depth of experience and kind of, you know, I know we talked earlier about thinking outside the box, but, you know, being innovative, you know, is a concept that's hard for some people to apply as a framework to think or use in thinking. So what would you say is one of the most important things to, to kind of thinking more innovatively? Be open-minded to change, accept change. And that, look, that is the fundamental, look, Bitcoin guys, I love you. Ready? I don't like Bitcoin so much, but I love you. I love your optimism and I love that you're open to new technology. I wonder, love that you're open to DeFi. I love that you're open to completely autonomous banks. I love the concepts that you're coming up with because you're open and what we're what we're going to fight with in this digital as we progress into digital payments what we're going to fight with is innovators and whether you like bitcoin or not that's not the issue bitcoin guys are innovators give them credit for that the fundamental technology that's behind bitcoin is exactly what's behind china's central bank digital currency Disclaimer, not blockchain, but lots, they borrowed lots of other stuff, okay? So the point so I, is, um, innovation versus status quo, and that's the battle you're going to fight. And the banks and credit card companies, they're going to want to keep the status quo, and that's the reality. So so I think, um, you know, uh, we got a chance to catch up before we started here, and, and one thing you didn't mention was that uh, you actually are uh, the owner of some real estate property. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, I, I think you'd mentioned you owned it throughout the duration of COVID. So I'm just curious, uh, you know, what those experiences were. Well, I, I, I guess the, I guess the experience I want to convey to everybody is what it's like, you know, so look, we pay rent, we pay mortgages, we all live someplace. And whether we live someplace, we have to pay and we have to manage the property and we have to do stuff. Right. You know, and I just wanted to sort of highlight the funny difference between doing business in the United States and doing business in China. So I'm a renter in China and, you know, it's just really funny, but we pay everything digitally. So if I pay my rent, I pay it digitally. If I have, if my landlord has to pay me some, whatever, some returning some security deposit, it's digital. So the old joke about real estate is the check is in the mail, right? Well, that's gone. So, you know, when I work in the U S with our own properties, it's all about, waiting for the money to come in. And I'm, you know, we're still waiting for checks to come in. And when we have to accumulate bills, all right, from a, from vendors who fix stuff, plumbers, whatever, right? Well, we have to wait for them to bill us. And the billing cycle is whatever it is for that particular tradesman. So you've got this long lag time for the bills to come in, if you've got triple net leases, you've got to send out the bills, but you don't know how much because that guy hasn't billed you yet. So you've got this really elastic 
concept of accounting where things go in and out. And it's just really amazing because here in China, you know, the bill is simply, you know, the guy gets his phone out, types a few things on a note on the back and boom, you've got electronic billing. All right. If you don't want to pay at that moment, you don't have to. But in most cases, it's like, okay, I got the bill. Boom. There you just paid. So all of these you know, property maintenance issues, especially having to do with lag time for payments and receiving. Boy, it's a different, it's a really different world. And, you know, mortgages, paying mortgages, everything is, yeah, all right, I get it. We've got, oh, you said, I've got digital payment. I've got auto payment, you know, queued in for my mortgage back in the States. I get that. Not the same. Everything here, taxes, everything is actually done digitally and done immediately. And it's really mind blowing. So it makes property management, you know, a really different ball game. And, and I wanted to talk about that only because I saw some of your previous podcasts were talking about real estate. And if there are any real estate fans there, you will love this coming digital world. <laughs> Unless, of course, you're taking cash for rent and you're hiding it, in which case the digital world will not be your friend. But I, I do not condone illegal activities. We had two more questions that came in and then we'll, they'll wrap up. Uh, just curious for a quick response to both of these. The first is a confirmation uh, on whether the digital currencies or central bank digital currencies will be on the blockchain. Uh, let's confirm this. China's central bank digital currency will not be based on a blockchain. Let me explain why. It's really simple. China has 1.4 billion people. And when they buy stuff during the ver China's version of Christmas, which is really called Singles Day, which is 11-11, right? During the peak, Alipay processes 500,000 transactions per second. Now, let's put this in some kind of perspective because, you know, like it's a big number. And I think most people say, well, okay, dividing a second into 500,000 units is pretty small. The Visa and the MasterCard networks in the U.S. and Europe, depending on whose statistics you get, process between 50 and 70,000 transactions per second. So China's on a different level. And when they started building central bank, this, their central bank digital currency, which started in 2014, you know, there was no Ethereum 2.0, which is still not out yet. But, you know, at least, you know, you can look at Ethereum 2.0 and people will say, look, it, it can clock in at two or three hundred thousand transactions per section. Great. But that's really bleeding edge technology and blockchain technology that can peak at 500,000 transactions per second. I don't want to say it doesn't exist because somebody is going to say, yes, mine does. I get that. And I know there are fast blockchain protocols out there. But for a central bank, they only use bulletproof proven technology. The only way to do it for them with these high uh, throughput numbers is with a traditional uh, database provided by Ant. They're going to build it on OceanBase, which is Ant's technology. So what it does use, it does use UTXO for Bitcoin fans. So your wallets are UTXO. It does use tokens. It's tokenizing money. Um, it does use lots of hashing for the security all through. All through. So um, there's lots of bits and pieces from the Bitcoin world that have really, you know, if you 
be, been adopted. And I really make a, a point to try to show in the book, in my book, hey, look, this comes from Bitcoin. So one thing I want to make for you guys, and, and if you love Bitcoin and you love crypto and you don't like central bank digital currency because because it's fiat, I get it. But be open-minded. It's going to be there. You know, you want to buy a cup of coffee, it may be the way you're going to do it. If you are out there and you hate Bitcoin, give the Bitcoin guys credit. They invented something that we, you, federal, you know, central banks are now adopting bits and pieces of, if not in other countries that are going blockchain, entire systems. So give them some credit. And, you know, I, I hope these worlds can somehow come together and sort of like work together rather than, I really hate fiat. I, I get it. You like we all know the overprinting is an issue. It's in the newspaper every day. And yes, I get it. Bitcoin, it goes up and down 20 or 30%. That's not great either. You know, But try to make these groups come together and at least acknowledge that there's good stuff on both sides of the fence. Uh, that's great. And probably a great place for us to wrap up. Richard, just for disclosure purposes, um, we did talk about a lot of publicly traded stocks. Um, you know, Are you an owner of any of the stocks that we discussed? That's an interesting question. Uh, right now, I am not an owner of any of these stocks individually. They may be, at, really, I used to have securities licenses. So I am not presently an owner of any individual stock referenced. I may, however, hold positions in ETFs or other mutual funds. I, I am in a similar boat. I don't own any directly, but uh, certainly might have more indirect exposure through a, uh, a, a fund of some kind. Um, so Richard, thank you again for, for taking the time. For all of our listeners, please make sure to listen to other episodes of The Yield and visit and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify. For any questions on Yield Street, please visit www.yieldstreet.com or email us at investments at yieldstreet.com. Rich, thank you again. Wonderful conversation and we appreciate you taking the time. Peter, thanks so much for having me. Thanks to all the Yield Street listeners or viewers and I love you all and go cashless. Your cashless future is a good one. Don't be afraid of it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to YieldStreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at YieldStreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. 
These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.